0: This is a Tech Media Group podcast. As NASA plans launches to Mars, Europa, and beyond, the agency's Office of Planetary Protection ensures that the environments are shielded from contamination, especially the bacteria and microbes of Earth life. This month on the podcast, we feature Dr. Catherine Conley, who oversees and audits the planetary protection strategies for NASA's exploration missions. To kind of set the stage here for a position that people might not be aware of necessarily, uh, can you start by just telling me what is uh, a planetary protection officer?
1: Sure. Uh, so the planetary protection officer is responsible for ensuring that agency level missions, or and actually because there's only one of us, there has there's to be missions from a particular country, uh, that missions comply with outer, tree, outer Space Treaty policies on forward and backward contamination. That is, uh, it's very important if you want to go look for life on Mars or some other place where Earth's life might hap- be uh, possibly able to colonize, that you avoid introducing Earth's life that that will, would potentially confound your ability to identify life from that, that Earth native, native to that target rec- location. So if you're looking for life on Mars, don't bring Earth's life with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that is what NASA predominantly has been doing for the last 50 years or so. In addition, uh, because obviously bringing something back from somewhere else has the potential to that has the potential to introduce viable organisms into the environment of the Earth could cause very significant downstream consequences, as we have demonstrated by moving things around on Earth that are from different parts of the Earth. The highest priority for product production is to ensure that samples returned from another location do not are not permitted to introduce biohazards to the environment of the Earth, and that is. Uh, that the Andromeda strain, if you're bringing samples back from somewhere else. Um, these, in this, these activities were identified before the launch of Sputnik as being concerns relevant to space exploration. They are subsequently instantiated in the Outer Space Treaty, as um, Article 9 of that treaty includes the provisions that plunder protection adheres to.
0: And you mentioned consequences. Can you go into what those consequences are and how can Earth... Uh, impact other planets. So, um,
1: if you are trying to identify signals that are potentially very faint, and you have a high background, that is, there's life everywhere on Earth. So, if you're looking for indications of life in a space, uh, you need to make sure that your spacecraft is not covered with Earth life to such an extent that your instruments can't detect the faint signals of Mars life or Europa life. So if you're an astronomer and you want to study faint stars, you don't go looking outside during the daytime if you're trying to look in the visible range. You need to make sure that your background limits are low enough that the signal is going to be visible. So introducing Earth life to a place where Earth life could grow, um, one of the reasons that we're interested in going to Mars, for example, is because the physics of the Martian environment is such that Earth-like biology, Earth-like biochemistry is thought possible to happen. It's you know, approximately the right temperature, it's got water, it's got, you know, gravity is not too dissimilar. And um, based on our understanding of life on Earth, life on Earth, Earth is sufficiently adaptable that if put in locations on Mars, there are, there are environments in the near subsurface and deeper subsurface and possibly even the surface of Mars where simulation experiments on Earth have demonstrated that Earth organisms could probably grow.
0: And are, are there uh, best practices? How can we deal with the uh, bacteria and the microbes that have been brought, uh, or that could be brought to other planets?
1: Yes, yeah, so, the, so the best practices were developed for the Viking project. So the Viking spacecraft were cleaned very carefully. They were carrying life detection instruments and also a radiothermal gener- generator, so they had a permanent heat source. So the life detection instruments were cleaned very carefully for... Um, the kinds of contamination that might interfere the instrument. There was a mass spectrometer that was cleaned very chemi- carefully for biochemistry, biochemical compounds, and then also baked to eliminate any viable organisms. There were some metabolism-based experiments that were baked carefully and prepared very carefully to avoid any earth organism being viable inside the hardware. And then after that had been done, the, the entire spacecraft, after it was constructed and packaged up in um, Pakistan, its heat shield and back shell, was put in an additional shell, a bio shield, and baked in an oven. At for the the oven reached temperature such that the spacecraft was at 50. De, it was at uh, 100 degrees C for 50 hours. 110 degrees C, sorry, plus the error of the thermocouples for 50 hours. So that meant there was ramp up and cool down times outside of that 50 hours. And that, was specifically, uh, that treatment was specifically designed to kill all of the organisms that were beyond the surfaces of the Viking spacecraft that we knew about at the time that the Viking project was put in place. And so that was the most careful um, preparation that has ever been done for a mission anywhere else. Um, and that is the kind of preparation that would be needed to go to Mars anywhere on Mars today.
0: Uh, and how does your office interact with other teams when they're looking to do exploration?
1: So my office is the oversight function. I am responsible for ensuring that NASA policies are followed and developing uh, policies appropriate on the basis of external scientific advice. So I'm, I do audits of mission implementation activities. So each mission that has a concern, that is of a concern for prior protection, needs to put together their own implementation team that then would develop the strategy by which the mission is going to demonstrate compliance with the requirements. It's not dissimilar to what SNA does. So I'm a headquarters through a technical expert function, and they, each mission needs to develop their own strategy for compliance, but I give them advice. I, I actually tell them what their requirements are in the first place on the basis of best you know, scientific information and current asset policy. And then I also go and do audits to confirm, their, to audit their, their compliance and ensure that they're complying Effectively, that they, they're doing what they have said they would do in terms of pre- their, after they prepared their
0: plan. Uh, and in terms of of Mars research, uh, how are we doing there as far as um, not contaminating uh, Mars and and making sure that that it's clean? Uh, the-
1: so the Viking project did an excellent job of that. As I mentioned, it was baked such that there were no viable organisms on the spacecraft. But, but since Viking, that's actually a bit of a complicated question because after the Viking results were obtained and the report, the conclusion that Viking did not find life on Mars, which was actually um, not necessarily a valid conclusion, but the conclusion from the Viking project was that, they, we, that we did not at that time find life on Mars. And so subsequent to that, and based on orbital information, scientific information obtained by Mars orbiters, the requirements for Mars were relaxed so that recent projects going, recent missions going to Mars, the Pathfinders, the Mars Exploration Rovers, Phoenix Project uh, Modulo, some good work that Phoenix did, and then the Mars science laboratory, those rover missions did not, they they cleaned their spacecraft to a similar level that Viking was cleaned, but they did not undergo the final baking step, so they were not sterilized. And because they were measuring only heat-resistant organisms following the protocols developed by Viking, which were accepted as a proxy for cleanliness, the Viking protocol killed off everything that was not heat-resistant. The Pathfinder Mars and Mars Twenty Twenty. Did not go ba- do a baking step, so everything that we didn't detect was still alive on those spacecraft, and that's somewhere on the order of a thousand times to ten thousand times the limits that are specified for the heat resistant organisms, which is a, how we measure cleanliness. So that means we've sent some you know significant number of organisms where the limits are three hundred thousand heat resistant spores allowed on the surfaces of the spacecraft, but underneath that heat resistant that number of heat resistant spores is an entire uh, you know iceberg worth of Viable organisms that we can't measure, and we didn't measure. Uh, so we know that we have sent viable organisms to Mars. The reason that that was considered acceptable as a risk on the basis of by international policy uh, formulators was because we thought the environment where Mars was quite hostile to Earth life, and therefore anything you know, the, the relatively that, that's that's about the number of organisms that are on the, the your two hands. So it's not actually a significant a huge number of organisms relative to the organisms that are present on Earth. The spacecraft were extremely clean but they did have some viable organisms on there. That was, that, risk, that was considered an acceptable risk relative to the benefit of not having to take your spacecraft because it was considered that the environment of Mars was so hostile that it would kill off anything that got there. Unfortunately, some data, a lot of the data that's coming back from the atmosphere station, the weather station on the Curiosity rover, suggests that, in fact, the environment, even at Gale Crater, which was reviewed by my office and as the most preferable plant-to-protect site, landing site for the Mars Mars Science Laboratory, on the basis of planet protection, it was thought to be the driest and the least likely to have any kind of hydration that would potentially support Earth's life. turns out that the Gale Crater site is much more wet than we had understood. That's on the basis of the DAN instrument and the REMS instrument, those data coming back. And so uh, it's looking more and more as if we probably relaxed the requirements for Mars a little bit too much.
0: So uh, what are you you working on currently? What is kind of your, your main focus?
1: So that's one of the challenges of my office, is that we have to monitor all the missions. And so we are particularly concerned about missions that are going to places where Earth's life might be introduced and proliferate. So that means we're currently focused, of course, on the Mars missions that are upcoming, the InSight mission, which will launch next spring, and then the Mars 2020 mission, which is hoping to launch in five years or so, uh, and in fact collect samples to bring back to Earth at some future point. So that business of returning samples from somewhere else to Earth then invokes all of the Earth's safety considerations of lander protection. So Mars is one area that I look at, but there also have been missions, uh, there is a mission that's um, received funding to go to Europa, which is another target location of interest for potentially contamination by Earth life. And that mission includes both a Jupiter orbiter that would fly by Europa, as well as there are proposals being worked on right now for a possible lander associated with that mission. And so the requirements for Mars are... um, one type of thing, but we did a lot of work during the Viking program to identify numerical requirements that are appropriate for Mars missions. And those were accepted subsequently as being easier for engineers to implement than a, a probabilistic risk assessment, which is what we what, which is what counter policy still uses for IC, objects in the outer solar system.
0: And what do you say to, to someone who might think, you know, we're going to colonize Mars anyways, so so why um, why the extreme caution?
1: So, what would you say to somebody who was um, telling the sailor on, on Columbus's ship who had malaria that he shouldn't really come to the New World and that the mosquitoes bite him?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Malaria today is a five billion dollar a year impact to the economy of Central America. If we had stopped people from Europe coming in and bringing malaria, that would not be an economic consequence today. Mm-hmm. So, we have seen from life on Earth, from our experiences on Earth, that if we bring organisms, we, we we cannot help but bring organisms with us if we bring organisms and introduce them in a way that we don't understand, the subsequent consequences to a variety of human interests is far more significant than anybody had any idea about at the time that Columbus was sailing to America. The, the choice by the global community in the 1950s to set up something like climate protection is really the first time in the history of humanity that humans as a global civilization have made the choice to do something right, not to learn from their mistakes, but to learn from previous mistakes and do things carefully this time. And that is the basis of planet protection, is that you take the best available scientific information and make a decision on the basis of things you know, evidence. If you have evidence there's no life at an an object, then go ahead and contaminate that object. But in the absence of evidence, be careful. Mm -hmm. So the Viking implementation for Mars was the most careful implementation that we thought would be appropriate on the basis of the risk benefit of yes, we want to explore, but we need to be careful. So there's a, it's, it's absolutely a risk benefit approach. There is a risk to going and exploring that we might contaminate places. There is a benefit of some exploring. And the balance of the risk benefit analysis was this one times 10 to the minus fourth number that we have still applied to other planets. It was considered a, a 10 to the fourth risk, 10 to the minus fourth risk was considered acceptable relative to the information that we wanted to collect. And that was, that was initially true for Mars also. Uh, the Viking project did enough work that we've now changed the requirements for Mars such that there are numerical limits. Um, but the point is that on the basis of this risk-benefit analysis, that was put in place because we understand that in the past, as humans have moved around on the Earth, we have caused ourselves, our future descendants, major problems because we were not careful. The mm-hmm. Black plague coming to Europe killed off 10% of the population. Um, you know, rabbits in Australia are some one example, kudzu in the U.S. There's all kinds of examples of introduc- introducing organisms in a non-controlled way that we didn't understand. In, in fact, in some cases, we didn't understand this for centuries afterwards. But the damage that's caused by that ignorance, the introduction in ignorance, is something because we we're launching rockets from Earth, and that's a very difficult thing to do. As a global civilization, we can control that. Mm-hmm. And that was the choice of the protection. That, that started in the 1950s and then was put into the outer space treaty. And every signatory, there's over 100 signatories to the outer space treaty, and every signatory has agreed to do planetary protection.
0: What do you think is most exciting uh, about your work
1: to you? Um, well, I'm a biologist, so I would very much like to know whether there's Mars life on Mars. I'm quite confident that there's Earth life on Mars. I just hope it isn't spreading. Um, but I would, uh, being somebody who's interested in evolution... And considering the fact that we, there are three branches of life on Earth that were separated for very long periods of time, enough that four billion years later, we can still see the record of that in the, the genetic relationships between the organisms, I would very much like to, be, to be, have the ability to understand whether some of those organisms spent at least some part of their evolutionary history on Mars. There's an idea, it's called Penspermia, where you know, we might all be Martians because Mars cooled down faster than the Earth, and you can see in the geological history of the Earth a record of biology going back pretty much as far as you can look. There was just recently a report finding a light isotopes of carbon, which is something biology tends to concentrate, the light, the light isotopes of carbon. They found these carbon-12 isotopes enriched in a inclusion in a zircon that was 401, 400, 4, 4.1 billion years old. That's effectively during the late heavy bombardment, but the earth had hardly even cooled down at that point enough mm-hmm. to allow the chemistry that goes into biology, the biochemistry to happen. The physics of the surface of the earth were hardly in, in such a state that you could actually imagine biochemical reactions happening. We're already seeing possibly, you know, it's a weak evidence, but it's possibly evidence of life. Certainly by 5, 3.8 billion years ago, there's evidence of living organisms on earth. That's about as fast as you could possibly imagine life happening. And if it either really happened that fast, in which case life should be easy to find somewhere else, or it didn't start on Earth but it was introduced from somewhere else, the most likely place for it to be introduced is Mars. Either way, studying Mars and understanding the potential for life on Mars, or to have been on Mars, is something that as a biologist I find really fascinating.